Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. This webinar is going to be slightly different from the other two, where we're really going to look to the um, future, um, what we're going to do over the next 12 to 18 months. So we've invited a, um, a panel of people to join us in those discussions. But before we go to that, I'll just um, I'll, I'll set the scene in a minute. But before that, I'd just like to hand over to Gareth to talk about some sort of topical news um, items that we're dealing with at the LMC. Gareth. Thanks, Nigel. Um, yeah, I'm just going to give you a few few headlines of, a few, of some things that are happening at the moment. Um, and uh, we'll whiz through it fairly quickly because I think the debate's the most important thing. So as I'm sure you're all aware, Monday is now a bank holiday. So please go and enjoy yourselves on Monday and have some, some well-deserved time off. Um, we're now learning about a phase 3B of the National NHS staff asymptomatic test taking place. So in the BSW part of our patch last week, 20 practices volunteered and took part in that and over 200 swabs were taken to, uh, to get some feel for the level of um, COVID within primary care staff. So that'll be interesting to see those results. Hopefully they should be available next week. Um, the next headline is that the PCN deadline is approaching at the end of May. Um, Nigel and I produced an LMC document which has been hopefully circulated. So if you should have seen that, if you haven't, I'm sure it's on the website. Um, and the GPC meeting yesterday um, was looking at the data. It looks like about 97% of practices nationally have indicated that they will sign up and about 1% have indicated that they will not sign up. Um, but just to remind you all that the deadline is the end of May. Also, another reminder, the national flu letter has now come out for the flu season next year. It's pretty much the same as last year, but slightly different vaccines for different groups. So have a look at that. Um, and also, we all need to start thinking about the big question, which is how are we possibly going to deliver a flu campaign in a socially distant world? Care homes, a little bit of news about care homes. Um, as I'm sure you're all aware, that's um, formed a focus of attention in the media. So NHS England are very keen to monitor what's happening in care homes. So they um, instructed CCGs to, to um, establish a weekly sit rep on care homes and have a nominated clinical lead by the 15th of May. Um, this has been a little bit controversial. Um, as you can imagine, but we now hear that 100% of care homes are now a nominated clinical lead. Um, obviously, there's the, the uh, issues on care homes that came out in the letter from Nikki Kahani about the work that needs to be done and the importance of integration with community services. Um, a bit of news on cervical screening. The routine call was paused nationally between the 6th of April and the 4th of June. So it's going to be restarting in June. And again, the challenge will be delivering that service in a social, within the confines of social distancing. Some less good news. CQC have started to rear their heads again. And they have now developed a programme which they've called the Emergency Support Framework. And they're planning to phone all, all practices um, at some point in the next few months to, to start their process of assessing practices state following COVID. Um, the BMA have pushed back against this, but the calls are going ahead. So just, again, be aware of that. There is a blog on the CQC website which explains it in more detail. Um, the other thing that uh, I'm sure you're all aware of is the change in case definition that now indicate, uh, in, uh, includes a loss of sense of taste and smell or anosmia. So um, I'm sure you're all aware of that if you're a clinician. 
Um, and then finally, we've been doing some work um, on risk assessments for staff in the office because as the uh, COVID situation has progressed, then the um, the research has been coming more and more online about the various risks of the various groups uh, of our staff. So I've um, tried to pull together some of the research trials um, and we'll be putting a new page on our website which includes some risk assessment tools and some of the papers um, that have been published over the last couple of weeks. So if you're having any issues around risk assessing staff, then um, we'll have that resource up and ready for you next week. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Gareth. Um, can we go on to the next slide, please? Um, so I'm just going to set the scene about um, the restoration and restore. So this is what the NHS is looking at, at how we move from where we've come from, the sort of six to eight weeks of managing COVID and putting everything on hold, to how do we get services back up and running? And that's being sort of divided into what's happening in acutes, what's happening in the community and in general practice. And within the acutes, looking at services such as radiology, routine appointments, urgent appointments and cancer. So if we just quickly look back and say, you know, what, what, what's worked well? The transformation that's occurred over the last six to eight weeks would have taken years to achieve, um, but has happened really fast and really shows the strength of general practice, the agility, the ability to innovate, the ability to change when it's given the freedom to do so and the clinical and managerial leadership um, meeting head on what the challenges are. So, you know, when you look at it, what's gone well? Well, less patients have come in and there are concerns that we're missing pathology, but one could also say that some of this is patients with less serious problems are self-caring and self-managing. I've talked about the freedom to innovate and the ability of practices to produce hot and cold sites at breakneck speed is absolutely breathtaking. Collaboration, we've seen local practices working really well together. We've engaged with our hospital colleagues uh, in a way that some of us haven't seen for many years. And I have to say our CCGs locally have been very um, productive in terms of working with us and with um, PCNs and with practices and have been really helpful. Um, everybody moved to total triage using telephone online. Video consultations have clearly been a major benefit in terms of both safety and working in a different way. And also with remote working where some areas had laptops um, in Dorset, for example, a year or so ago, which has proved really useful. Doing virtual ward rounds of care homes during video consultations have proved really helpful. And also in some of our areas, and unfortunately it's not in all areas, closer integration with community staff has been really productive. Next slide, please. So, you know, when we look at it, there's a much more flexible use of the workforce and we're finding that um, more people are looking for salary jobs and partnerships, um, particularly as locums are struggling a bit to find work. Um, if you look at the way we've used our sites, we've based the surgeries on clinical risk and we've brought people into the hot sites. They've now tailed off in terms of the activity, but shouldn't be um, completely closed down. They could be mothballed, but we need to be mindful of what might happen in the autumn with the normal viruses coming in as well, trying to differentiate out from COVID. We've got 82 PCNs, and I would say that probably the COVID crisis has done more to develop PCNs than anything that's happened in the last few months. And the clinical leadership from our um, PCN clinical directors has been phenomenal and they've been 
become part of the local leadership team, working well with CCGs, hospitals, with ourselves, and also coordinating and um, working with local practices. Um, you'll know that there's quite a big bit of digital. There's been some resistance to digital change in the past, but the use of sort of more laptops with remote working, with webcams, AccuRx apps that are coming on, but also communication within your team and across organizations. So, you know, the massive use of Zoom and Microsoft Teams has enabled people to work together from remote sites, uh, link in with hospitals, do MDTs, do all sorts of other things, which will change things, I think, forever and things that we don't want to go back on. Next slide, please. So we, we've now reached that phase where the numbers of um, people with COVID is falling. The number of people in care homes with COVID is also falling, fortunately. And the number of people being admitted to hospital, going to critical care, being ventilated and sadly die, all of those looking at trends are falling. But there is obviously COVID circulating through the community and what we can't be is complacent and think, well, we've solved the problem and it will all go away because it won't. And what we are mindful of is the risk of people coming in to be seen, even in the cold sites who might have COVID. And then looking forward is, you know, the prediction is we might get a second um, surge of numbers of people with COVID and we need to be prepared for that. So if we look forward from now and planning for that, we need to be able to manage the COVID patients that present even if they are small numbers. We need to look at the non-COVID work. So that's beginning uh, in many places is coming back quite significantly. So we'll have the people presenting with urgent problems, the routine problems. How do we restart minor surgery? Uh, hopefully people have been continuing with childhood vaccinations, but how do we reestablish screening? The breast screening and bowel screening will come back slowly. Bowel screening, for example, they've got a million people on the waiting list to reestablish that. But certainly for, for us, then cervical screening is important to restart that over the next few weeks. I mentioned briefly about the management of long-term conditions. I believe there's an opportunity then to look at how we manage these, risk stratify them and deliver this in a different way. If you look at what I would describe as normal general practice, whatever normal is for the future, there are all those things which we will deal with, with people presenting with undifferentiated symptoms or the ongoing care of patients. But there are some major challenges to the capacity we'll have, and that's particularly around how we're going to manage people who are on the shielded list, how we're going to manage people in care homes if the COVID um, activity continues, and actually how we manage people with COVID. And we will need capacity above and beyond uh, what we normally have in general practice to achieve that. Next slide, please. So if you just go back a bit and the long-term plan, we shouldn't forget that. That was a 10-year plan with a five-year more detailed plan. And one of the major themes of that is removing the barrier between primary care and community. And in one of our previous webinars, Andrew Bishop, the medical director in Hampshire, was talking about the, the battle with COVID will be won and lost in the community, not in the hospital. Yet we see a lot of focus in the news and other things about services going on in hospital. But the restoration and restore is just as important, if not more, in general practice and primary care as it is in the hospital. So there will be a greater focus on population health 
and services based in our community and reduce dependency on hospital-based care. But what we've got to be careful, and we've already begun to see some of that, is where hospitals are looking at their outpatients, discharging people, or doing video consultations and then looking to general practice to pick up the work that they're not doing. And we've got to make sure that the services that we deliver are balanced, proportionate, and the responsibility lies with the person who's the most appropriate, not that we just move work around the system and it be um, based in general practice. Next slide, please. So the PCNs have proved themselves, I think, um, if you look around the whole of Wessex, the um, CCGs, the hospitals, um, are looking to work with PCNs more collaboratively in the future. There are examples around the, the um, area, you know, if you look at paediatric hubs, primary mental health services, um, community nursing working really um, collaboratively with general practice and diabetes care being moved into the community. We can go much further than that and looking at things like dermatology, respiratory care, cardiovascular, more could be done in general practice or in PCNs if the resources were there and people had the training and time to do it. Next slide, please. So I'm gonna stop there and bring our panel in. Um, and we've got some questions for them, but I'm very happy that you start posing the questions as well. And what I hope to do is to have some debates and, dis uh, and discussion about where the panel think thinks are going and what they've been doing that would help deliver the general practice that we see for the future. So can I, can I ask the panel just to briefly introduce themselves, talk, just mention where they work and the things that they're interested in? So can I start with Tom? Yeah, thanks, Nigel. I'm Tom Bertram. I'm a GP in Fairham, and I'm the clinical director for Sovereign, which is a 38,000 patient uh, three-practice network in Fairham. Um, so we're really interested in, in looking at what services we can deliver better together really interested in trying to get our patients involved in their own healthcare, uh, but not losing the best of traditional general practice, want to improve access whilst um, improving or maintaining continuity. Ali? So I'm Ali Cork, I'm a um, GP partner in a rural practice north of Salisbury. Um, I'm also the vice chair on the BWS, BSW, sorry, um, LMCs. Uh, we, the three changes that I've seen and um, would like to maintain, um, firstly, I'm always interested in the primary secondary care relationship. Um, I think this has been dramatically improved um, with technologies such as um, Consultant Connect. Um, and I'm interested to see in the future how we can sort of continue that, um, such as using platforms like Attend Anywhere, which our local trust has been using, and we can use sort of joint working um, and three-way consultations and things like that. Um, I'm also extremely interested in uh, self-management and how we're going to take that ahead. I think we've got a great opportunity now to um, pounce on the general public with what's been going on already and enhance that. Um, and also in line with that, the opportunity to change the mindset of us as a profession uh, so that we practice in a slightly less paternalistic way um, involve patients a bit more. Um, and thirdly, as a rural GP, um, I'm obviously interested in uh, the way the changes are affecting our rural communities. It's actually a really big opportunity for us to 
to use um, different platforms. Um, we have very poor transport networks, um, which can prove difficult for people with medicines and getting to surgery. So I think it will have a big impact uh, on our rural communities. Um, the only issue that we need to resolve, which probably needs to be resolved at a national level, is, is the network issues of network coverage and connectivity for us, which is a real issue for a large proportion of our population. Okay, we'll come back and explore some of those in more detail. Liz, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, yes, I, I'm uh, Liz Hirsch. Uh, I'm a GP at St Chad's Surgery, which is a surgery out of Bath in Baines. I'm clinical director of Free Valleys Health, which is a nine practice network, 67,000, so semi-rural and very rural, I would say. Um, I think you've mentioned most of them, um, Nigel, but certainly the, the, the things that, we've, that I really would love to carry on and build on is this whole idea of bottom-up in, innovation and how we can take that, that, those, those ideas that we have in primary care and scale them up quickly um, and actually work and encourage our, our colleagues uh, in, in, in the community teams and uh, hospitals to do that. So a good example in, in Baines has been the care homes um, and how really we've, we've managed to wrap around care homes for the first time, a really good public health and infection control response and actually get community teams to support the care homes so it's not just the GP doing that. Um, the other thing I think that's gone really well is communications with patients. Uh, I'm sure lots of us have sent numerous texts out, out to them. Uh, and I think really that we, we, can, we can really build on that. And certainly that's one of our PCN um, sort of priorities is to really build in communicating and working with patients and how we can get, even in a virtual world, um, a really good um, patient, patient ref, reference group. Uh, and, and finally, I think, is the voluntary sector. So again, in Baines, I don't know whether that's happened elsewhere in BSW, but we have something called the Compassionate Communities Hub, which is a joint um, enterprise between the uh, community services of Virgin Care and over 2,000 volunteers who've basically gone around doing things such as delivering medicines, doing anything, talking to patients, picking up the phone uh, and helping that loneliness has been absolutely brilliant. Working with our new social prescribers uh, has really, really, really been very effective. So we don't want to lose them if some of them go back to work. So I think we've, we've got a huge amount. Okay, thank you. Um, Rav, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, my name is Dr. Ravin Ramta. I'm a GP partner at Highcliffe Medical Center in Dorset. Um, I'm also a governing body member for Dorset CCG in my other role. Um, so yeah, a lot of things have been covered, um, which has been really helpful. But one of the things I wonder is how we sell general practice now to the future trainees and selling it to how because it's so different how it's going to look so we're involved with um first year medical students from southampton third years final years f2s and gp registrars and it's how um it looks in the future. We're already looking at video linking with the MIP1 students from July. So there's a lot of changes about how general practice looks and how we sell that to the future trainees. Um, the other thing I want to build on about is about the care homes. I think we've developed very good relationships with care homes, with, um, with especially around the changes to the death certificate process and using WhatsApp um, to help support care homes. The other thing which we've also been working on is transformational work with our diabetes about, as you mentioned earlier, moving that into primary care. Um, and that's also helped. And one of the big things we're looking in Dorset is the outpatient experience for patients. So they're not having to travel all the way to secondary care for follow-up appointments. And I hope we can use the digital platform to build and help, as someone mentioned earlier, about sort of joint MDTs with consultants for patients. 
So, yeah. Okay, thank you. Right, I'm going to try and pin you down a bit more now. So I'll start again with Tom. Can you give me three things? Just what, what, what has changed in your um, working life over the last few weeks that you don't want to lose? Well, so the first thing I think is communication. So we were a fairly well-functioning network before this. We operated a same-day service together for the last uh, two or three years, which worked well. And we had some touch points because we all shared um, uh, patient-facing roles there. So we had a, an AMP team and then uh, the GPs rotated through. One of the things we did through this was uh, quite rapidly instigated a daily um, touch point through MS Teams. Uh, we, and we regularly get with between 20 and 30 of our GPs and other clinicians on the call. And it's been a, a real success. So uh, at the start of the process, it was a bit of command and control because a lot of changes had to be made quite quickly. But then as time's gone on and um, we've got used to the way that we're working, it's been a much more collaborative approach. And certainly moving into this next step, I would say that uh, although probably we've already stepped back from doing daily communications, that, that better uh, communications between the clinicians, the non-clinicians and managers in our setup just enables messages to be jointly delivered and developed. Uh, and we really don't want to lose that. I would say the, the second thing would be uh, making time and space for our management teams. So I think that one of the things that we, we thought we were doing quite well before this was giving our management team space to work on the network agenda as well as the practice agenda. But I think we need to do a great deal more. And I think what this, is, what this process has shown us is that the ability of a network to be innovative and agile and robust really does come down to our management structure. And so I think where we would like to go uh, learn from and develop is freeing up people's time to be able to deliver that management leadership, um, investing a lot more in practice management than we have done traditionally. Uh, and I think the third thing I, I pick up what others have said about um, uh, population health and patient engagement. So I, I do fear that quite a lot of the reason why patients haven't um, come in with various issues over the last period of time is largely an element of fear about presenting to primary care. But I do think it represents a real opportunity. And one of the key things is I think that we look after the patients that book appointments to see us and we'd like to start thinking about the thousands of patients who are registered with the three practices with our network who never come to see us. How do we get into their lives, uh, get them healthier, reduce health inequalities? Um, we're starting something, in fact, today on smoking cessation, but other, other ways of recognizing that the people who are registered with our network, and it's not just about those people that book an appointment, what can we offer the people that don't? Okay, Ali, what three things would you like to keep? Uh, much like Tom, I think the virtual platforms have really completely changed our way of working. Again, in large geographical rural areas, um, meetings can be quite difficult with, you know, often an hour's drive to get to things. So I think it's, um, it's enabled really good peer support. In our PCN, we've got um, lots of small practices, actually over 11 sites um, across the area. And some people are very much working in isolation, single-handed, or maybe two people in sight. So the virtual platforms really enabled us to be able to give support to everyone. 
Um, the um, second point on primary and secondary care interface, um, I'd, I'd really like to, as I've always said over the last few years, improve this connection. And I'd like to still see further improvements in the, the advice and guidance and consultant connect platforms. Um, but just to give you an example of something that we've done within our PCN recently, uh, showing a sort of collaborative working is we've um, been able to negotiate a pilot scheme whereby you, with Salisbury Foundation Trust and RPCN we've employed uh, on secondment a clinical pharmacist um, to our PCN for a year and that's actually going to enable much closer joint working between both the trust and the PCN so we could see lots of lots of points on benefits on both for both parties for that so it's just a, an example um and the uh third point again i'm sorry i go back to the same thing but for rural communities um our network coverage is is poor and our um we, we look after very elderly and um, frail populations who don't particularly have good access to um it phones and things like that so that's one area I'd really like to see um, expanded. And, and uh, as one of our other panel members was saying just now, we, we'd like to work as we are much more with the voluntary sector, with local communities who built up very quickly to provide us with um, networks within villages of support and also with the third sector to help us um, look after these, these uh, remote communities. An example of that is being able to, for instance, um, provide them with um, home monitoring systems. Um, and so we're looking to the, to the third sector to help us with that at the moment, as obviously there isn't sort of clinical commissioning pathways for us to be able to uh, pres prescribe things like blood pressure monitors. We're trying to work with the third sector to help us with that. Okay, Ravi, what three things would you like to keep? Um, I think the first thing is continuing to improve access to patients. I mean, we've worked in Christchurch with all our four practices um, on a weekend service for improving access. And that was very successful, but it's building on that now with the virtual model um, using um, uh, online consultation. So certainly the digital platform I'd like to build and keep on. The other thing is the, the social prescribers have been really helpful. And it's also building on the additional roles in the new PCN DES to help support um, general practice um, and also the integration with the community services was was starting as a good project uh, in Dorset and I think I really want to keep that that work we've done with them. Okay Liz? Yeah I, I'd, I'd like to we've, we've really pushed the boundaries on working from home I mean clinicians and non-clinicians non are working really quite effectively from home and I think that helps with you know if you haven't got enough rooms in the practice um, or you've got shielded members of staff, etc. And I think, you know, I think we, I think we should keep continue that because there's certain advantages to the working from home. Um, the other one was really the clinical voice um, and how um, certainly in Baines, um, the CDs have had a strong clinical voice with with our federation, and, and that's been um, really, really effective. And actually, clinicians have been able to get to the meetings because they've been remote rather than having to trek out to the hospital or wherever you can actually get there. Uh, remotely, so I think I think we need to keep that clinical voice strong, and um, particularly the primary care clinical voice. 
Um, I, I guess the only other thing I would say is about comms. I think it's it's a balance. I think it's fantastic to communicate with people, but we've all been overloaded with overloaded with information. So there is something about um, how we actually make sense of all this information, make it really meaningful comms, because sending loads of comms out doesn't necessarily um, get get received properly. So I think there's there's a real trick there in, in getting um, comms that that people understand and can keep up with. Okay, can we move on to the more about the future? Um, can I ask you, Ali, about restarting cervical screening? Yeah, so one of the luxuries of being small practices is we can often pilot things on a small scale before introducing it wider. And so um, I, we've recently been piloting our SMEAR uh, programme. We, we basically looked at things that we felt a couple of weeks ago needed reintroducing, one of which obviously was cancer prevention and um, we've, it can seem rather overwhelming at the moment, a complete redesign of what we're doing in the NHS services. So we've sort of taken the approach in phase two of to sort of slowly pick away services and carefully think about each one and introduce it carefully. Um, and as I say, we, we can pilot that. So with our SMEAR programme, we, we've just sort of slightly redesigned it. So um, instead of having ad hoc SMEARs, all over the place we decided it's much safer for instance to have them in one smear clinic um right person right place right time approach in that we we started with our experienced uh, sort of smear takers and also with some assistance um obviously at social distancing but we felt that provided a sort of safer platform so that um you know there's someone to help with the cleaning donning and doffing and things so that you make sure you've got the process correct we then we um, probably the most important thing is that you, we minimise the time the patient is the, in the practice for. So um, a lot of preparation before the appointment is necessary so that we talk to the patient beforehand and find out very simple things, but where the period, when the period was of those sorts of issues so that we can actually generate all the forms, write everything before they come in and have everything sort of set up. Um, simple things um it's not rocket science but we we're checking their temperature on arrival and we've asked them to wear face covering i know everyone has different views on that um and i think it, it's just about sort of looking through the process and and working it through and it seems to work very well people patients have been incredibly responsive to it um we've had you know there's been no problem getting people in they feel it's been done in a safe way um and then we're just reviewing it regularly just to make sure we're doing it properly really so i think it's about taking small things at the moment in phase two and just sort of slowly chipping away at their design and making sure we're doing it correctly with the appropriate risk um, assessments in place and ali has kindly shared her protocol with the lmc and we'll share that um out to everybody so you can have a look at it it's um Simple and straightforward, but very practical, which is, I think, again, I would agree totally with Ali saying we need to take small bites rather than trying to, you know, change the world in. Uh, well, actually, we've probably changed the world in six weeks through necessity. But going forward, we want to build on that. Um, can I come to you, Ravi? Um, in your practice, which I know well because it's neighbouring mine, um, all the elderly people that don't live in my practice area live in yours. So what, what are you doing about re-establishing face-to-face um, or, or, and, and using the video consultation going forward and doing it safely? 
Yeah, so we've we've looked at we've split our practice into three areas. So the blue zone, we call it a green zone and a red zone. The red zone is obviously the patients that are sort of respiratory type symptoms post seven days. Um, and then we've got the GPs working on to almost on a complete triage system um, for all sort of urgent appointments. And also the GPs have also got some routine telephone appointments, which are also bookable online for patients who want continuity. Um, and then we speak to them on a duty list and then we find out who's the most appropriate clinician. Some of the clinicians are working from home and then we will book them in if it's felt appropriate with either a, a nurse practitioner or a GP as sort of urgent on the day. Um, and then we've got these sort of blue zone, which is kind of more the sort of nurse-led clinics, um, the smears, um, which again are all booked in by our administrator team, a bit like Ali with a process in place. And then they're all contacted on the day to, to again, by the clinician who's going to see them to check again are they well enough to come in for things like the baby ims um, their smears their immunization so it's almost a, a screening on the day and prior to um, their face-to-face -face appointments when they do come in we're kind of um our waiting room isn't that big so what we've created is almost we will collect the patients in from their cars and we annotate on their appointment system which car to collect if it's a different clinician and then we bring them in and we're wearing obviously full PPE so yeah so it's quite time consuming to do if you're doing that for each patient you're seeing face to face yeah we've moved to a lot of the GPs have moved to 15 minute appointments with um, um, sort of booking alternate slots um, a lot of the nurses particularly who are doing SMEs have got longer clinics so in terms of capacity we've got far less capacity than we used to but we're coping okay at the moment um, yeah okay Liz what about in your practice and PCN are you doing more or less the same sort of thing in terms of screening patients before coming in and trying to minimize the footfall? Yes, um, so we, we so all the practices are actually essentially cold sites because we our federation runs the hot sites, so we can actually differentiate that. But I mean, you know, we, everyone is using the car park as the waiting room and decontaminating rooms, minimizing face-to-face -face and footfall, going, you know, electronic, all the sick notes, et cetera, electronic. So yeah, we're all doing very similar things, but we're lucky that the, the, that the hot sites are actually separate to the practices. So, so we've been able to carry on throughout actually, but I think the capacity thing is, is a real problem because I'm sure all of us have found that demand has definitely gone back to pretty normal levels now, and, but everything does take longer. So I think that's something to, that we really need to keep an eye on. And the, the LMC's view is that we will reach a point where general practice will start getting saturated. And because of the COVID making routine stuff longer as well as doing the other stuff. So there are the CCAS service, the clinical assessment service um, run by 111 is now fully staffed. And there are GPs out there who are prepared to increase the work they do, number of sessions they work or the returners or the locums. And that's where we're talking to NHS England about additional resource through the GP COVID fund to help practices with the shielded patients, with the hot sites, with actually with the practice work that's going to come, you know, it's increasingly coming back. Um, can I ask the panel then, um, so Ali has given us a good template to start the cervical screening, which I'm sure practices will start looking at and doing shortly. What about coils and implants? Um, do you feel that that could be developed along the same way as um, cervical smears? Any views from the panel? Yeah, 
started them a while ago. So, you know, very similar process and no problems. Um, I think I think some some people are very fearful of coming in um, and you just need to talk through. But if you can reassure, and it's easier for us because we've been cold war from the beginning, really. Uh, if you can reassure people of the really high level of, of uh, infection control and you can wait in the, in the car park, most people are encouraged, are happy to come. Okay. Tom, would you like to talk about sort of long-term conditions Huge subject, but just do you think we should carry on managing in the way we're doing at the moment, or do you think there is an opportunity to do things differently? In which case, what would you like to see happen? I think there's a huge opportunity, actually. So in the same way as we're now triaging all of our unplanned care, I think that there's a, the opportunity to start triaging all our planned care. Um, I think it does tie into some of the things that we've already said about I think that we could engage our patients much better at asking them to provide us with metrics. And so we're, you know, that pop, the idea of population health and saying, you know, it's part of your responsibility as a patient to give us the information we need to be able to help you. I think that's an ongoing process, but particularly for those people who do have long-term conditions, I think uh, remote or virtual um, reviews where we can try and, um, segment our population into those patients with long-term conditions that you know would be safe to close off that annual review with a virtual review and then working our way up towards people who will need that GP or specialist nurse appointment or perhaps even interaction with community diabetic specialist teams for example so it, that's certainly something we're looking at at the moment um, Yes, and the other thing I think is across the network as well. So we've, uh, with many of our, um, over the last eight weeks or so, with many of our services, we've noticed that, that delivering a cross-network approach is just far more effective. And yes, I think one of the things that we need to perfect is the, that, that aligning of processes across the three practices that we have here. Um, but we've been amazed by the innovation that happens when you get more people in the room, practices have expertise in them across their workforce, which if you just multiply that by three in our case, you know, magic starts to happen. Uh, and I think that we, we want to apply that. We're, we're trying to apply sort of quality improvement processes to all of these sorts of joint um, uh, network uh, projects. So certainly long-term conditions and our approach to those will be a key one. I mean, two things you say there which chime in me. One is, you know, I think in the past we've treated um, all people the same in a long-term condition. So you get the same input if you're 90 with diabetes as if you're 30, rather than really focusing the um, appropriate care to the people who where it's going to benefit most. So, I mean, I agree with you. I think there's a real opportunity. The second is I like the word magic because I've heard it before. And I've heard, um, despite you know the huge concern about the number of deaths and things one of the things that has happened is general practice has really come together working as a team working together and some of that magic has returned to general practice where we're using our skills with the clinical freedom to be able to do the things that we're trained to do and that makes general practice a more attractive career going forward i'm not saying we should carry on fighting covid for the next umpteen years we want to see that over and done with but if we can retain some of that magic and some of that innovation and some of that real patient-centered care which all four of you talk about that's how we'll um, attract more people 
um, to stay in the profession and actually come back to the profession and encourage people into the profession. Okay, can I ask you um, a bit about patience, the new, the new normal, whatever the new normal is. So I think most people would say we're not going to return to how the NHS was, let alone general practice was, six, nine months ago. We'll be delivering care in a different way. We'll be doing things differently. How are we going to engage with our patients and get them on board with us? Rav, do you want to make any comments about that? Yeah, I think I think we're looking at our PPGs and our um, and sort of um, virtual sort of communications to patient participation groups to disseminate that information, and we're looking at that potentially being across the network. Um, so, I mean, we're we're a population in our network of about just under fifty thousand, and it's about us all joining together with the local authority. Um, we used to have well prior to COVID, we had our transformation engagement events, which were really quite successful. But going forward, I'm uh, I'm not sure sure that is as time efficient and you get as many of the patients you really want to attend so i think virtual platforms are probably going to be the way alongside our ppgs good um ali any comments about our rural patients any different to the urban ones do they complain as much no i don't think they do um <laughs> yeah i mean we we have really great connections with our ppg and as ralph said we would use them and use help use them in the rede redesign just um, one um, thing we've done on communication and things which might be worth mentioning is within our PCN, we've just um, employed a learning disability lead um, and she's going to be working not only on the proactive le um, learning disability care, but also for sort of improving communication, you know, within groups of people that might find it more difficult. Um, the other thing is our social prescribers, um, again, have, proved invaluable in communicating with our frail and remote, isolated um, population. Um, so I think it's about using other people within our um, organisations and networks to help us help us improve that communication. Um, I mean, to, to Liz, you mentioned, um, I think most of Hampshire is using AccuRx, but you're using uh, Attend Anywhere. Do people believe this is something that we need to retain? And it's useful going forward, or are you? Do you believe we're going to go fully back to face-to-face -face consultations? Um, well, we sorry, we're actually using AccuRx as well, but I, I, I think it, it's been very surprising how many people love it uh, that you wouldn't have thought love it. They clearly. Yeah there's still clearly a, a, a place for face-to-face -face, but you know for mental health patients some of them feel much more comfortable doing an e-consult um, or speaking to you on the phone than they would coming in so I think you know we need to have a, a, a wide range of offer for our patients going forward but I, I think we, we've probably um, not appreciated how well most of them can can do um, digitally having said that there are still a core cool number of people that you just have no hope with of getting a video consultation so they need to be looked at and uh, our social prescribers uh, are linked to our village agents so we're also pretty rural and, and they are our eyes and ears really and taking them out to to the community so I think that's the key really in helping to enable them to use a, a smartphone etc and, and get what we need. So can I ask you each, is, is the one sort of innovation that you've introduced in your PCN, your area, which we haven't discussed before, which you think this has really changed the way we think, the way we do things? Just quickly, um, uh, I think the one thing that we haven't yet introduced, as well as we should do, which we would like to do as a matter of priority, is the use of data. 
So uh, I think that a lot of the way we use data currently is it comes from the top down and, and it's interesting to look at, but isn't really meaningful. It doesn't really either encourage us to or incentivize us to change the way we operate. And I think there's a huge amount of uh, data held in our own clinical systems that we could be using a, to a much greater extent. And there are practices and networks out there that are doing it. We're not doing it very effectively. But I really like to see uh, data analysis functions, which are currently being held in the CCG, coming down into networks and helping us to use what we know about the services we offer and the patients we serve so that we can offer uh, services that, that better reflect what our patients want and align with what our secondary care colleagues can offer uh, and what the system wants as, a, as an outcome. Uh, our local CCG has already started that process, which in fact, the person who was gonna come and help us start doing that, we had to cancel because it was the first day of the COVID response. So it is starting to happen, but that's, that, that's what I'd like to see. Okay. Um, Ali, any one thing that you haven't mentioned already? Um, I'm not sure if it's an innovation, but something that's been very useful is um, as a PCN, um, to where people um, working, again, single-handed small practices, if, if someone's ill suddenly, it can cause enormous problems. Um, so we've, ha we've seen much um, or very helpful support from neighbouring practices and to enable that the very first thing we did I think on day one which we hadn't done previously I'm sure lots of PCNs might have, but is made sure that we all had access to each other's clinical systems um, so that was the first thing the second thing was we we created a database of all our clinicians within the PCN um, and their contacts and um, also their clinical availability um, so that we could we knew when people could be called on um, during, during the week. So um, I think, I mean, that in the initial stages was very useful. And obviously, as we go on, and hopefully we don't see a second wave and things like that. But if we did, then we can fall back onto all that again. And it's all, all still in place. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to bring up one question. In, oh, I've been going through some of the questions on the Q&A list. Firstly, if anybody on the call has got a procedure for doing coils and implants um, that they're happy to share, please could they email it to me and um, give me permission to share it with others rather than everybody reinvent the wheel. The second was a question about, um, I think there are some concerns with things like AccuRx and some of the other innovations that NHS England will keep these in place while the COVID crisis is on and then suddenly either turn them off or pass the cost to practices. I mean, all I can say to you is there is um, strong support for the innovation that's taken place and the use of technology, the digital stuff, that this should be the normal offer to general practice and um, to the wider community going forward. So uh, I, I don't work for NHS England, so I can't give you absolute guarantees, but I would be, very surprised if um, those things didn't continue to get supported. You know, things like Microsoft Teams and the Office 365 in at the NHS are all critical for the things that you described. Um, can I just turn to self-care? Has anybody got, does anybody believe that we will move to getting patients more self-caring? And if so, how can we do it? Because the evidence in the past has not been great in terms of changing people to do it. 
So we, one of um, the partners at my practice um, has started self-care and advice for people with hypertension and giving patients parameters, advising which, uh, where to purchase machines. And then they can email in or we're using AirMid as one of the sort of video consultation techniques and it allows patients to enter the data directly into System 1. Um, so because obviously, you know, with the practice being closed, they can't use the blood pressure means. So it gives them parameters of when to call for an urgent duty doctor call and when to sort of if it's raised what to do with tablets so we're kind of looking at a hypertensive model which seems to have gone down quite well and the air mid you've only just started using recently haven't you yes that's correct yeah that and that's a new product from system one yeah, it, it's, very, it's quite well integrated within System 1. I mean, we've had a few teething issues, but one of our partners um, researched it and looked at the future potential of all the things that it can do within System 1 in terms of communications. Patients can tag things on the records that, you know, in the summary that may be inconsistent from their aspect. And they can also go task into the surgery. Obviously, we've set it up so they can't task directly to a GP, but it also hopefully will reduce the traffic on the phones, which we're all finding quite high at the moment. But we're finding air it is quite quite um, quite useful for that. I mean, the, there is quite a lot of discussion going on both locally and regional about self-care and really about the national message that needs to come out of NHS England and others to promote that with patients rather than it just be down to general practice trying to do that. Gareth, you're sitting there. Can I ask a question about when will schools get the message that we will not be writing letters to say that children are able to start school again or not able to when they've got mild asthma, etc. Well, it's really difficult. We're working on something now, so I think we've got some um, uh, template letters and things that we'll be sending out very shortly um, because it is it is a real problem. I mean, essentially, it's not your job to do that. It's not your job to police that. Um, it's for it's for the parents and the schools to come to that decision. There's a question about um, telehealth and telemedicine. My understanding is that the southeast of England is going to be a pilot for doing this. There is already work going on um, in the Mid-Hampshire area with the care homes looking at um, putting telehealth in there and seeing how that can be um, improved efficiency and provide better outcomes. So I think there are there is an intention to work more closely with the care sector. Also, there has been a question which one of somebody's asked about. There are some really good apps like My COPD, My Diabetes, My Asthma, but they cost 30 or 40 pounds per patient. And up to now, the licenses have only been, been given to the hospital to give out, not to general practice. And considering some of the steroid inhalers can cost 50 or 60 pounds, it seems ludicrous that we can't access the apps for people. Um, and again, that's being looked at through the digital work that's being done nationally. I'd hope some of those apps would become more widely available. One of the reasons that's been given not to do that is the evidence is that by giving people these apps, they'll use them for three months and then about 80% stop using them. So we need to make sure that if we're doing it, it's part of uh, a program of care that is continued and actually the use is um, of benefit. Um, we've got about just under 10 minutes left. so. Looking, looking beyond COVID, can I ask each of the panel just to briefly describe their vision of what they think general practice will be like in a couple of years' time? Tom? Yeah, so I'd like to, I'd like to change the traditional uh, relationship between patients and the, and the network. So I think that you know, the patient calls the network because they, um, 
they need help or advice on that day. And I think our traditional response has been, okay, we can offer you an appointment with a GP in three or four weeks time. I think there's a real opportunity here to embed that idea that if we get it right and triage that request appropriately, then we're going to get the right advice from the right person today. And so that, that's something we'd like to do along with what we said about uh, long-term conditions. And I think the other thing I'd like to um, really see going forward with general practice we haven't mentioned already is or only briefly mentioned is in, in Portsmouth there's been a really functional and productive uh, communication between primary and secondary care and I think we need to try and get those touch points between primary secondary care as efficient and effective as possible so a lot of a lot of the things that we're learning about what patients want to see from us in terms of the, the wide range of um, ways that we can interact with them, you could almost mirror that with the wide range of ways that we'd like to be able to interact with secondary care. And certainly in Portsmouth, they've committed to doing that with uh, the PCN clinical directors and the CCG. So things like asynchronous conversations via advice and guidance, things like Consultant Connect, things like um, the same sort of remote uh, consultation models in, in outpatient appointments for our patients that we're offering, they're offering or considering offering in secondary care. So uh, I think, yeah, trying to really um, finesse those touch points between primary and secondary care. Okay, Ali, what would you like it to see like in a couple of years time? And I'd like to see a vision of bliss and uh, <laughs> happy, happy primary care community. Um, I think the, um, being able to work differently will suit some people and not others, but I think we need to retain that sort of flexibility for people so that maybe people have a little bit more choice um, in the profession as to how they work, you know, remote working, etc. There's no reason it's working incredibly well now and there's no reason why, why we can't, can't carry that on. And I think it will encourage our um, younger um, GPs and people coming into the profession if we can show that we're a sort of forward thinking and flexible profession, I think that would be very, very useful. Um, much like Tom, I'd, I'd like to see blending of primary, secondary and social care so that we, we work much closer together. And I think that will happen um, naturally. And finally, I just think we need to maintain that the, the anecdote that we're seeing people, it's the right person, right platform, right place, right time. And so that we, we maintain that and take that along with us throughout the process. Rav? Yeah, I agree with the sentiments of Ali and Tom there. I think it's the interface between secondary and primary care. I mean, I hope that we can almost abolish the, the long referral letters that we're doing, that we can have an interface directly with secondary care to get a, a rapid response from the consultants. Um, and also putting the care uh, around the patient with so integration with social care. I think that's one of the things which has always been quite challenging. We found up in Highcliffe with quite a vulnerable elderly population. And it's that always refer to social services is that interface isn't there now so i really hope we can break down those barriers as you mentioned earlier okay um i'll come on to the other two in the panel the the lpc are on the um webinar and they've posted something about nobody's mentioned community pharmacy and i'll mention it now which is i think working more closely with our community pharmacists is really key going forward particularly with some of the prevention work they can do that, that there is enough work out there for all of us 
um, and we need to um, work collaboratively with them. Uh, the other bit was a question about wearing face masks, um, asking patients to wear surgical masks. I mean, our advice has generally been patients who are coming into cold sites should wear face covering probably because of the risk, um, but they should not be given surgical face masks, which are in short supply. Certainly if people are coming into the hot sites, they should be wearing some sort of face covering. And if they haven't got anything, it's probably appropriate to give them a face mask. Gareth, do you want to comment on that? Uh, no, I think you've summed it up, Nigel. I think that's right. I think, you know, the evidence is that um, in the, it's patients who probably should be wearing face masks just as much as clinicians. Yeah. Okay. Um, Liz, do you want to comment on the future? Yeah, I, I love the idea of being bliss in bliss, so I'll build on that. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I really want the expanded MDT, uh, and, but we've been trying to grapple how people like first contact physios will work in a more virtual way and how that, that might work. Group consultations, uh, I, I got pushed off uh, earlier, but group consultations we're really keen on. So I think the, certainly the MDT uh, new staff will, will, we want them all to be working uh, in, 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 a, in, a, in a group consultation way. I think absolutely data, doing one search once for the whole network, doing those sorts of things at scale it makes absolute sense. Um, and the, the sort of public health side of things, I think um, hopefully this epidemic has shown that public health is of key importance and I hope we can make sure that um, that is built on and, and integrated with us. Gareth, would you like to comment on the future, what you think it will look like? Uh, we seem to have spent the last few months discussing it. Yeah, I think we've covered a lot of a lot of what we've been talking about. I mean, I think um, I think the big thing that's come out from the questions as I've been watching it is the need to get public engagement and get the public on board with it. Um, and I think that's absolutely valid that we need we need the system as a whole to help with this. It can't be just left to general practice. It's got to be the wider system. It's got to be consistent messaging from politicians to NHS England to CCGs to practices and trusts. Um, I, I think I think without that we'll be we'll be fighting a, ba a difficult battle on our own. But um, I think there's a window of opportunity to do this now. I think the way technology has been adopted by the population, not just in general practice, but by the population as a whole, is a real window of opportunity to change what we do. Yeah, and I would add to that. I think we need to make general practice a better place to work, which will with a workload that um, is doable and appropriate, which will retain um, people. Um, encourage more people in and then moving forward that'll be better for our patients and actually better for the NHS. Okay we've come to the end of our hour can I thank the panelists hugely for giving up their time and their expertise and their knowledge can I thank people for joining us for the hour um, we are intending to continue with these webinars every couple of weeks but we won't be holding them on a Friday before a bank holiday um, it's just simply that trying to fit times in has been difficult. We'll try and move them to a more convenient time. Can I thank you and hope you found it useful um, and we'll keep trying to communicate with you and give you the information you need. Thanks very much. Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice.